Now today we come to Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi brings down the curtain on the Old Testament. He is the last voice of the Old Testament. And he's the last in a long succession of prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. In fact, you have to go back a thousand years, and you find that down through the centuries, God was increasing the tempo of telling the people about the coming of the Messiah. And the last voice is this man Malachi. I like to think of him as sort of a radio announcer for the Lord, and we'll see why I say that in a moment. And it's as if he is saying, the next voice you will hear is John the Baptist in 400 years. Well, 400 years is a long time to wait for station identification. Malachi, though, is a very interesting person, though actually we know nothing about him. We're going to find out that he has a wonderful sense of humor. I don't think you can be a prophet or a preacher without a sense of humor. And if you haven't found humor in the Bible, my friend, you are not reading it aright. But you find that this man here, in a very definite way, was a messenger. In fact, his name, Malachi, means my messenger. The Septuagint gives its meaning as angel. An angel was a messenger. That was the title. And sometimes an angel could be human or divine. And we, of course, have associated angels with supernatural creatures, and probably rightly so. But an angel was a messenger, and the name Malachi means messenger. In fact, there have been a few church fathers that actually thought that he was an angel, that an angel wrote this, but there's no reason to make that kind of a statement, to take that position. And, of course, at the opposite extreme, you have the liberal school of higher criticism that claims that the book was originally anonymous and that Malachi just means messenger and it wasn't a name at all. Well, they always come up with something like that. And you don't need to take that extreme position at all. I think that it's very easy to make this statement, Malachi was his name. And our information on him, I think, is limited as it is regarding angels. But others have suggested that he was an angel, and others that this is an anonymous book. I don't think it would be anonymous. If it was, it would be the only book on prophecy that we have that's anonymous. And I do not think that Malachi would want to be the exception to the rule, especially since he wrote last. There's a reason why we don't know too much about him. He's a messenger, God's messenger, with a message. And frankly, we don't need to know about the messenger. The Western Union boy that rings your doorbell at one o'clock in the morning with a very important message for you when you go to the door. You don't have the boy begin and tell you, my ancestors came over on the Mayflower, and I'd like to tell you about my ancestors and myself. You don't care about the Western Union boy's ancestors. You don't care whether they came over on the Mayflower, especially at one o'clock in the morning. You're not interested in that. The fact of the matter is you don't even get his name. The important thing is the message that he gives. Well, Malachi was a messenger, and we don't have his name. Actually, you have that same method used by the Spirit of God in the Gospel of Mark. You see, all four Gospels present Christ in a different way. Matthew presents him as the king. Well, if he's the king, he'll have to be in the line of David. That's the way the Gospel of Matthew opens, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David. That's the important thing, that he's the son of David, because he's presenting him as the king. 
Well, when you come to the gospel of Mark, which presents him as the servant of God, why, you're not concerned. At least Mark's not concerned about giving us his genealogy and there's none there. The important thing about the servant is, can he get the job done? That's the thing that you want from anyone that comes into the place of service for you. Can he get the job done? And Mark shows that the Lord Jesus could get the job done, by the way, and did get it done. So that we have here in Malachi this method that is used. Now, the time that he wrote. There's some difference of opinion here. It's the belief of conservative scholars today that he came in the last part of the 5th century, and it would be near 397, but probably much earlier or some earlier than that. The important thing is that Malachi was the prophet at the time of Nehemiah, as Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets at the time of Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua. So that we have here this man Malachi, he concluded the prophets as Nehemiah concluded the historical books that we have. And he probably prophesied during the time of Nehemiah's governorship or immediately after it. It was at that particular time. Now, we said he's a messenger, and the thing that's important is the message. And I'd like to say a word about that before we get into the study. He uses the term messenger himself three times, and he made three tremendous and significant references to other messengers. In the second chapter, verse 7, he refers to Levi, the tribe of Levi, as the messenger of the Lord. So we have here, and I probably should read this, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This suggests, I would say, that every messenger or every witness or every teacher of the Word is an angel of the Lord, <laughs> that he's a messenger of the Lord. And I like that because you have that in the book of Revelation. We have the way that the book of Revelation, you know, and we'll see that shortly when we get there. Actually, to the seven churches, the message is addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus and under the angel. Now, I believe it's the messenger of the church, and not divine, but just the human messenger would be the pastor. And I don't know. I was a pastor a long time. I rather like this idea of calling the pastor an angel, because I've heard him call everything else, so I don't see why we shouldn't include angel. But this is a remarkable reference that we have here in Malachi. Then he announced the coming of John the Baptist as my messenger. Over in the third chapter, we read in verse 1, Behold, I'll send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Now, there's a third messenger, and that's the reference to Christ as the messenger of the covenant. You see, the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament is definitely the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I want you to see something that makes Malachi one of my favorite books of the Bible. Now, of course, I have 65 other favorite books of the Bible, but Malachi had such a wonderful sense of humor, and he had to have to deal with the group he had to deal with in that day. And he adopted a method that is actually a question-and-answer method. The first thing that he would do, he would quote a declaration or an interrogation God made to Israel. Then he'd give Israel's answer, which in every case was supercilious and sophisticated sarcasm. It was arrogant and haughty and presumptuous and even insulting. 
We're going to see that as we get into the text that's before us. And believe me, he had some good answers from the Lord. And since they are the Lord's answers, the Lord has a sense of humor. And I hope you enjoy this book, because this is a great little book, by the way. Now we're going to be able to see that right here at the very beginning. Will you notice it opens with the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, by my messenger. He's the Western Union boy to bring the last message from God to the people. He's going to deal with those same problems that Nehemiah dealt with, which reveals he's speaking into that particular day. And one would be the defilement of the priesthood and the foreign marriages with divorce of their Israelitish wives. And believe me, God comes down hard on this. And we're going to speak on the subject of divorce when we get there. I've had quite a few letters that have come from folk that have wanted us to speak on it. Well, I just don't pick subjects. I take anything that comes up in the Word of God. If God talks about it, I'm going to talk about it. So divorce does come up here, and we'll be talking about it, and we won't hedge, I can assure you. And then the third thing, the people were neglecting giving to God the tithe and the offering. And believe me, you won't like what God has to say about those that were kidding everybody about their giving to the Lord. Oh, my. Maybe you ought not to tune in when we get there. I'll give you a warning so you won't have to listen to that particular part. Now, this that he gives us is a burden. Now, a burden is a judgment, as we've seen, a judgment from God. And it will be a very strong and rigorous rebuke that God will give to them. And that's something else I think you should note. He's addressing Israel, that is, all of the twelve tribes. You know, it's interesting, they didn't really get lost, did they? They seem to be lost for some people today, but they never were lost in any sense of the word. Now, he begins like this, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel, to Israel. All the twelve tribes, there are just a remnant from each tribe back, very few from each one, but God addresses them. And very frankly, I think it went from here out to the others that had not returned because there was communication back and forth. And the book of Nehemiah reveals that. Travelers going back and forth from their place of captivity where they had been in slavery and back to Israel. And so we are going to see that the message apparently went out to all 12 of the tribes. Now, God says here, verse 2, and it starts in, in this very marvelous, wonderful way, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful way to begin? How do you think that these people are going to respond to that? I remember they've returned, and by the time of Nehemiah, although they're discouraged about rebuilding Jerusalem, the walls, and they, under Nehemiah, they built them, and there's a show of prosperity, and they're going through the form now of worshiping in this rebuilt temple. They're going through the ritual of it, and on the surface, everything looks good. But may I say to you, oh, are they sarcastic? supercilious, sophisticated, blasé group. And God says to them, I have loved you, saith the Lord. And listen to them. Yet ye say, in what way hast thou loved us? Oh, can you believe that? That these people would have the audacity to speak to God like that. In what way? Hast thou loved us? I'm not sure today, but what a great many in the church would raise that same question. They say, look at the things that are happening to us. How can you say that God loves us? Well, God made it clear to these people from the very beginning that he loved them. 
And it's interesting that you go a long ways in the Bible before you find God telling anybody that he loved them. But if you go to Deuteronomy, and by that time you've come to Moses, and you're out in the wilderness, and you've been out there for 40 years, and it's going to be pretty hard to make anybody believe that God loves them. But now in the 10th chapter, verse 15, listen to what he says here. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. God just hadn't been saying that. You go through the time of the flood and afterward, God never told anybody. God didn't tell Abraham that he loved him, but he did, of course. But the point is, God was in no hurry let mankind know that he loved him. But here he says, "...only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is." Now, God's prepared to prove that. God's answer is this, "...was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau." and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, this is a tremendous statement here that God is making to them. The people were questioning. They were doubting the love of God. Now, God reminds them of the origin of the nation. Jacob and Esau were twins. God made a difference at the very beginning. But it was about 1,500 years before he stated, as he does here, that he loved them. This presents a problem. Why would God say that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? A student came to the late Dr. Griffith Thomas with that question. He says, I have a problem. Why does God say he loved Jacob and he hated Esau? And Dr. Thomas said, well, what's your problem? Well, he says, why did he say you hated Esau? Well, Dr. Thomas says, I have a problem with that verse too. But my problem is, why did God say he loved Jacob? That's the real problem. And my friends, I want to say to you, that's a real problem. Why God would say love this people. But let's understand one thing. God never said it until Esau and Jacob became two great nations. And they had long histories. And Esau demonstrated by his life and the nation that followed him. But here is the people, though they were disobedient to God, yet there was always a remnant that turned to him. And God says over in the ninth chapter of Romans, verse 13, he says, "...as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated." And it just simply means that though this nation failed, neither one of them deserved the love of God, yet there was the remnant that turned to God, and God therefore said that he loved Jacob because of the fact that God knew what was in his heart. He knew that here's a man that had a desire for him, and Esau did not have a desire for him at all. But you have to work that out in 1,500 years of history before God's prepared to make that kind of a statement. And it is a statement that we need to understand that the difference that we have here between loving and hating is simply this. The life of the nation that came from Esau, which is Edom, and the life of the nation, which came from Jacob, demonstrate that God was right when he said he loved one and hated another. And by the way, it reveals something that we need to face up to today. We're going to be talking about this more and more, but we've majored so in the love of God. Do you know that if God loves, God also hates? Because you can't love without hating. And someone has said they're very close together. Well, I think they are. But if God loves the good, he has to hate the evil. It couldn't be otherwise. And that's exactly what we are going to find here. God says that because of his life, because of the evil that was there in this man 
and worked itself out into the nation. And the history of the nation of Israel is altogether different. That God was justified, though he did not make the statement at the very beginning. God never said the beginning that he loved one and hated the other. He had to wait till they became nations. And these two nations are demonstrating that God was right in his statement. I read now verse 4, "...whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I'll throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever." And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now, what God is saying to them is this now. He says, My action and conduct with both of these nations that came from Esau and Jacob reveal that I love Jacob and that I hated Esau. In other words, this judgment of them. And at that particular time, Edom never made a comeback. When was the last time you saw an Edomite? They are just not doing business today. They went out of style years ago. Now, God judged them. And this action of his looks like loving and hating. And God says, I've demonstrated that I love you. Therefore, the choice of God at the beginning, he never made that statement because he had to wait until it worked itself out. And it reveals, therefore, that his choice is neither capricious, nor is it an arbitrary choice. God does not make choices like that. There has to be something to back it up. And God had a real relationship with his people. He was a father of the nation, as we shall see. He was their Lord, their God, and also their judge, and he judged them most severely. In fact, more severely than he judged Esau later on. But that's when they rejected the Messiah. Now, I want to read verse 6, because this is now going to bring us to the second question that they ask here. And here it is, verse 6, "...a son honoreth his father." and a servant his master. If then I be a father... Now, God was never a father to an individual Israelite, even both to Moses and David. The best that was said of them, they were the servants of Jehovah. Each one a servant of Jehovah. But what we have here is that God called the whole nation his son. And he had that relationship with the nation. Now, he reminds them of that. He says, if I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, that is your Lord, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. Now, he's not through with them. And he says again, and ye say, in what way have we despised thy name? They are greatly offended that God would say this about them, you know. My, we are such nice, wonderful little Sunday school boys and girls. And we go to the temple and we go through the ritual and we are very faithful and we are really the pillars of the whole nation Israel. And then you dare ask us here about that we despise your name? How in the world are we despising your name? Now, listen to the Lord. He says to them here, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And the polluted bread here, I think we should make very clear, the bread refers to the offering that was made on the altar. And it would be what we would call a meat offering. That is, it would be an animal that would be sacrificed. And God will make it clear here that that's really what he was talking about. He says that you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. The sacrifice is polluted. Now, they wouldn't buy that because they asked the question, 
wherein have we polluted thee? My, are they offended that God would dare say that to them because they were such lovely people. And to pollute God, by the way, was a serious charge, if it was true, of course. And they dismissed the charge with an indifferent nod of the head and a pretended ignorance. They acted as if he didn't know what he was talking about. And then God says to them, "...in that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible." Now, let me read verse 7. And the table here would be, of course, the altar. "...ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, In what way have we polluted thee? In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible." Now, they said it was contemptible and they despised it because of the way that they treated it, the way that they acted. Now, their hearts are really polluted and naturally the offering would be polluted. But they were to give a strong witness to the Gentile and God says that he intends his name to be great among the Gentiles. Let me move on down here. And, oh, this is good, my friends. Maybe this is the place where you ought to tune me out because, my, what the Lord says here is really going to hurt. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? You see, he is talking about animals. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Now, my friend, this is tremendous, what God is saying to him here. What really happened was this. Here is a man that, say, lives up in the hill country of Ephraim. He raises cattle. He has prize cattle. He always gets the blue ribbon at the cattle show. And so one day his prize bull is sick. And they call in the veterinarian, and the veterinarian says, I don't think he's going to make it. I think he'll die. And so the man says, well, let's load him in the truck in a hurry and rush him down there, and I'll offer him for a sacrifice. Well, the priests, they could see he was sick. The old cow was sick. But they went through with it because this is a pretty prominent fellow up there, you see. And the people saw this blue ribbon prize bull being offered. And they said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, he sure is a generous fellow. My, look what he's offering to the Lord. They went through that type of a thing. And today, do we have anything that corresponds to that? Paul, you remember, said that in the last days, among other things, they would have a form of godliness. They would be very pious. And if there's one thing that makes me sick today is this pompous piosity that's demonstrated by a great many so-called Christians having a form of godliness. You know, you can pour oleomargarine into a butter mold, and it may look like butter. It may even smell like butter, but it's not butter. And you probably have heard the story about the man, he was a very stingy man, but he gave his wife a mink coat. That is, it was supposed to be a mink coat. And no one could understand it, why this man was so generous until he and his wife went walking down the street. And when they passed a rabbit hound, the coat jumped off and started running. Just happened to be rabbits, you see. Oh, there's a lot of that. You know, this puts up a danger signal. It puts up a red light. I'm speaking today, and I don't know you, but I'm speaking to folk who go to church, and they listen. They are very orthodox. They're very fundamental. 
They say amen. They know the language. They can quote any number of pious platitudes. And they are satisfied today with a tasteless morality. They go through a form of truth on all the shibboleths. And they go through all of that and they're satisfied. May I say to you, they despise, actually, they despise God when they approach it like that. It was Dr. G. Campbell Morgan who years ago made the statement. He says, I am more afraid of the profanity of the sanctuary than I am of the street. The profanity of the street's bad enough, but the profanity of the sanctuary. Now, somebody says, but I never brought a sick cow to God and offered that. You notice what God says here? He says, why don't you take that old sick cow over to the governor and offer it to him for taxes? And by the way, that's a good question, isn't it? Do you give more and pay more in taxes than you give to the Lord's work? And I want to say it to you very candidly. Shame on you if you're paying more taxes than you're giving to the Lord's work. I believe that when the offering is taken in a church, the average church, and I've been a pastor a long time, that actually there is more profanity than there is down in the slums of the city and down where the drunkards are. Lots more profanity in that. Why? Because there's a great deal to put on. Now, I'll give you an example, and I'm not going to tell you where this took place at all. I know a very prominent businessman, and I will say this much, he lives in the East. And he's a man, frankly, that I greatly respect. But I have really suspected his generosity for a great many years. He likes to give, and he'll give generously if you'll put up a building and name it after him. When we got these new headquarters here, why, I had a suggestion or two from folk that be glad to, you know, if it was named in their honor. But we just don't do business that way here at Through the Bible. When you give to the Through the Bible, you're given to give out the Word. And you're not given to get your name written on anything. And I recognize that causes a great many prominent wealthy people to turn from me. But that's perfectly all right. The Lord is speaking to a whole lot of you other folk, and I rejoice in that. Now, this very prominent businessman, and I happen to know that on two campuses, he has buildings named for him. Oh, he's a big shot, let me tell you. And when he gives, you can be sure there's going to be the blowing of the horns and the sounding of the trumpet, and the blare of the trumpet, and the beating of the drum, because that's the way he gives. Lord Jesus said something to say about that, that the Pharisee, when he gives, he went down on the street corner to give to the poor, and he had somebody down there blowing a horn. So everybody said, Ooh, look at Pharisee so-and-so. Isn't he generous? He's down there on a the corner just giving money away to the poor. Well, may I say that this man, this prominent businessman, invited me out for an evening meal with him. And he and I had good fellowship. He's a likable fella. I tell you, he has real charisma. So he came to church that night where I was speaking. And the pastor there, he invited him up to the platform leading prayer. Because he's a wealthy man, let me tell you. And so he invited him up there leading prayer. Now, I saw this with my own eyes. He gave $2 tip to the waitress for the dinner that night. He put a $1 bill in the offering plate. And I thought, well, he didn't even tip God generously tonight. And I'm wondering if the same one who was here 1,900 years ago, who sat over the treasury and watched how the people gave. And I'm sure that some, if they didn't say it, they thought it. 
What business has he to see how I give? Well, he happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure that on Sunday morning he looks over your shoulder. Are you giving what you give for a good meal when you go out? Do you give to the Lord's work? Really, are you giving generously as you do to other things, maybe where it makes a show? May I say to you, friends, that the old sick cow is still being taken to church today. And that is the method that is used. And believe me, the Lord didn't let that pass. Say, this is burning sarcasm, and somebody's going to get hurt. Listen to him here. He says, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. How many of you, I say it again, And you can say it's none of my business, none of my business, but I'm just giving you what the Lord gives you. And he's saying here in a very definite way, he says, you can't bring him a sick cow. You don't pay that in taxes. Are you giving to the Lord as much or more than you're giving in taxes today? Somebody says, well, I have to pay my taxes. Yes, you sure do. But what about your giving to the Lord? That's supposed to be from the basis of love. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I don't think we're under the tithe today at all. And obviously, there was one tithe, and we know there was two tithes, and many think there were three tithes, that actually the people gave 30% of what they made to the Lord. I wonder how many of us today When the Lord Jesus looked over the treasure, he saw how the rich gave, and they gave generously. But he didn't commend them for it because they kept so much for themselves. But he saw that poor widow, and frankly, what she dropped in there, those few little coppers she dropped in there, you put that along by the side of the wealth of that temple, and very candidly, it was nothing. She gave nothing. But the Lord Jesus took those copper coins and he kissed them into the gold of heaven. And he said she gave more than anybody else. May I just say this? I know for the first time, because I never checked on people's giving when I was a pastor, unless it just came to my attention through their instrumentality, not through my prying into it, because I never did that type of thing and don't today. But naturally, here in radio, we do know. And I am amazed at how this radio ministry is carried on. It's carried on by many widows that send in a dollar bill. And they always say, it isn't anything. Well, maybe in comparison to our bills, it's not much. But I want to tell you, when a whole lot of widows get together, it sure makes an impression. And they are having a lot to do with the carrying on of this program. It's the $5 gifts, $10 gifts, that really today, people giving regularly, that carries on this radio ministry. Now, every now and then, we have some that give generous gifts. I grant you that. And that always enables us to take on another radio station, and especially a missionary station. But may I say to you, friends, the Lord doesn't want your sick cow. And yet it's being taken to church today, and a great many people are giving that way. This rather hurts, doesn't it? Now, God made it very clear to these people at the very beginning that nothing that was in any way maimed or defiled or that sort of thing was to be offered to him. In other words, God says, when you give secondhand clothing to the mission, don't put that down on your book. 
that you will get credit from me for that, because I won't give you credit for that. I don't take secondhand clothes. Now, don't misunderstand me. The missions can use secondhand clothes. They send them out to the Indians. I know when I was a pastor, every year we made up at Thanksgiving time box after box that went out to the Indians and also to Union Rescue Mission. But I tried to tell the folk that you're not giving to God when you give that sort of thing. Now, over in Leviticus, the 22nd chapter, verse 20, would you listen to this language here? But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow are a free will offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Blind or broken or maimed or having a wen or scurvy or scabbed, ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Either a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, that mayest thou offer for a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. God says that offering that you offer is really a picture of Christ, and he is perfect. And every offering like that was an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing in our day how folk despise the name of God. We despise his name in our offering. We despise it in another way, as we're going to see now in just a few moments. Now, in case that they missed it in Leviticus, Deuteronomy is God interpreting the law for them, and he's making it very clear to them. He says in Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter, verse 21, "...and if there be any blemish therein..." As if it be lame or blind or have any ill blemish, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. Now, these people were being very clever. When an old cow got sick or a lamb broke his leg, why, they would patch it up and then rush him off to the temple to offer it as a sacrifice to God. Now, God says, I won't accept that. I'm wondering today, how many offerings are really made acceptable to God? Because we're told today that an offering that we make to God is like a priest making an offering back in the Old Testament, that we're a priest before God and that we're to give today by grace. But grace doesn't mean that you give as little as you possibly can. I'm of the opinion that today we're seeing actually sacrilege committed in the church every Sunday. Now, somebody says, wait a minute, sacrilege means that somebody steals something in the church. Well, may I say to you, that is really the meaning. But you see, they were guilty of sacrilege. Their offering really cost them nothing. It was valueless, though it may be large. And somebody says, but sacrilege is when one man enters a church and steals something. My friend, no, sacrilege is entering a church and putting something into the offering when there's no blood or sacrifice on your gift. That's the thing. Actually, I think it's wrong sometimes to give. Why, a great many people go to a football game. Why, they put down a $10 bill or a baseball game or to some of these other games and they put down money like that. May I say to you that God said that if you can pay that kind of money, and then you come into my house and you drop a $1 bill in the offering and think you've done something for me, well, you didn't even give me the kind of a tip that you give to the waitress. May I say to you, this is pretty strong language, is it not? Now, let's move on here because, my, we can get hurt here. Now I want to read verse 9. God says, And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means, 
will ye regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, is it possible that these people could continue in that sort of thing, giving an outward show and not realizing that in their heart that they actually were not right with God? Now, will you notice he says in verse 10, "...who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing, neither do ye kindle fire on my altar for nothing? I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand." God says all this ritual that you're going through is absolutely meaningless. It's for nothing. It doesn't profit. And now they continue on, and I want you to notice this, "...for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations." Now, Israel was bringing the name of God into disrepute by the way they were serving him. And they were not serving him as they'd done in the days of Solomon, for instance. The queen of Sheba was greatly impressed. But at this time, nobody was impressed by it. It was just a form and a ceremony. And God says, but among Gentiles, the day is coming. Now, that's not today. If you think that's being fulfilled today, you're entirely wrong. It will be in the millennium, but not today. At least we're sure not seeing it today, because God's name is not great among the nations. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, and incense speaks of prayer, and a pure offering, and that pure offering is Christ. For my name shall be great among the nations, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, God's purpose in choosing them was that they might witness to the nations of the world. Now he says, but ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit of it, even its food, is contemptible. And now notice verse 13. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye've sniffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, they said, it makes us tired to go to church and to go through all of this thing. Ye say, oh, what a weariness. My friend, when the heart is not in the thing, it becomes weariness. I told my daughter one morning we were driving into Los Angeles. That's when I was a pastor downtown. And I couldn't wait to get to the church that morning. I had a broadcast to do and tapes to make, and I was looking forward to it. And I said, look at the faces of all these people in this big traffic jam, bored to tears, dreading to go to the place of work. I said, the worst thing in the world that I can think of is to be doing a job that you hate to do, and it makes the hours long. There's no joy in it whatsoever. And I said to her, you know, going to church is just as boresome to a great many people today. And that's the reason that you hear today in the churches, what can we do to interest our people in the church? Did you ever hear that talked over? Now, what can we do to get people to come on Sunday night? Or how can we get them to come? Well, somebody says, let's serve a dinner. Let's have a banquet. Let's have a little different service. Instead of all this boring Bible study, let's have some music, some special music, and let's put on an entertaining program. We could have some sort of a pageant, you know. What's wrong, folks? Well, people are saying God is becoming boring today. He bores me. My friend, why do you think men ever adopted a ritual to begin with? Why do they wear robes and chant and burn incense and march around? They're tired of spiritual worship, that's it. And they needed something to tickle the flesh. Somebody says, but I love an orderly service. I do too. But there's a danger of loving order. And there's a danger of loving a ritual. Now, I recognize that a ritual can have its place. And a great many people brought up that way can be fine folk. I remember when I first went to downtown Los Angeles, there was a lovely couple They really loved the Word of God, but they were members of a very 
formal church, very high church, if you please. And actually, he was enraged by my informality, the way I began the service, because I'm very informal. And he got so that he and his wife would not come until after we got the brief preliminaries over with. And he very frankly told me, he says, I just can't stand that informality. But he loved the Word of God, and I always forgave him for that. Now, way back in the stern days of our fathers, the Puritans, they sat on log benches. They listened for two hours. Now, there are today people that will sit for three hours out in the hot sun in bleachers watching a ball game. There are folk that will sit in the cold, watch a football game. And there are those that will sit for three hours listening to an opera, two hours in a movie. It takes four hours for Hamlet. And I'd be very frank with you, I find it thrilling to sit and listen to a Shakespearean play. My wife and I, when we were at Stratford-on-Avon, we went one night to see Richard III. Three hours. Why, I didn't sit on the edge of my seat, but I sat back relaxed and thoroughly enjoyed it. My friend, why are you weary when your preacher speaks for one hour? I'm a long-winded preacher, always have been. And when I used to speak an hour, do you know who complained about it? It wasn't the average person. Many people said they didn't think it was too long. It was some of the leaders, the so-called spiritual leaders of the church. They complained. What is it that's wrong today? My friends, we love the ritual, and we love the form, and we go to church, and we stand up and sit down, and we sing the doxology loud. But really, where is our heart today? Is our heart in this? Is it because of a love for Him? Do we desire to worship Him? Oh, may I say that we can sing, Were all the realm of nature mine, that were a gift. Far too small. Wait just a minute. May I say to you, is that a gift far too small? It sure is. Then why did you put just a dollar in the offering plate? If the whole realm of nature wasn't a big enough gift to God, then what about that dollar bill? And that dollar bill's not worth very much today. Oh, it's so easy to get tired, weary in church work. Dwight L. Moody came home one time, very weary, and he was going to another meeting without taking time out to rest, and his family begged him to cancel it because he was so weary. And he made this statement. He said, I get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. Oh, today, friends, to be able to say that. I'm afraid we got a lot of lazy folk that are serving the Lord. And I know that when I was ordained to the ministry, there were three sins of the ministry that were given to me at that time, and I've never forgotten them since then. I read verse 13 again of chapter 1 of Malachi. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have sniffed at it, turned up their nose, you see, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, who hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is terrible, that is, reverent among the nations." Now, that's what it's going to be someday. It's not that way today, even. And one of the things that has brought God's name into disrepute has been actually the ministry and those that represent him here, believers. And I don't question their salvation, and yet I'm afraid I do question the salvation of some. Have you ever noticed that God never called a real believer a hypocrite? But I tell you, the Lord Jesus really laid it on the line when he was talking about those religious Pharisees in his day. And he said terrible things about them. 
My, it was awful what he said to them. He called them whited sepulchers. Can you imagine that? That's an awful thing to call these people whited sepulchers. But that's what he called them. And he called them a dish that on the outside is beautiful. But on the inside wasn't even washed. Didn't even get in the dishwasher. And it comes out filled with all kinds of garbage. And he said, that's the hypocrite. That's what these people were. First thing they did would bring those old sick cows. Now the thing they're doing is this, oh, this is boring. <laughs> all these long services, you know. My Bible study is certainly boring. When you go through a form of religion. Now, let's put it on the line. Do you have religion or do you have Christ? Are you real or you're just going really through the form of it? Do you wear your Christianity like it's a garment that you can take it off any time and put it aside? And you generally do when you're not in church. You assume a certain attitude, become very pious, and you could quote pious platitude. But how real is Christ to you? I thank God that over a period of years, in fact, for 21 years, we averaged on Thursday night 1,500 people. And that was said to have been, for that period of time, the largest midweek service in America and probably in the world. I don't know that. All I know is what people told me. And I always thank God for that. But when somebody came and patted me on the head and told me how wonderful it was, well, I always told them this. And if it was late in the afternoon, I would take them down and show them those great buildings there that in downtown Los Angeles that were emptying of workmen. I said, did you know that well over... 200,000 people are down here that are leaving, going home. And out of that number of 200 and some odd thousand, about 1,500 will be back here for Bible study. I said, our batting average really is not very good, is it? But most of those people were church members. And on Easter Sunday, oh my they're all out there on Easter Sunday, you see. And they're also out in Dodger Stadium, too. And they can always make that Sunday afternoon when they find that it's impossible to get to the Sunday evening service. You see, friends, there is a great deal of religion, but very little, really, of Christianity, of the real article. A great many folk are just playing church. When I was a kid, we played store. I used to fill tin cans with dirt and sell them, you know, to the other kids in the neighborhood. My, I ran a store, playing store. It's a lot of fun as a kid. And there are a lot of people having fun today playing church. When I was ordained to the ministry, the man who gave me the charge of entering the ministry, he said there are three great sins of the ministry that you want to avoid. And I've always remembered them. Maybe I haven't followed through as I should, but I've always remembered those three sins. What do you think of the three great sins of the ministry? Number one is laziness. Yes, that's right. That's the reason that we don't have more expositors of the Word of God today is because it requires study to be an expositor of the Word of God. And it's so easy to get so busy during the week. And shame on you if you're taking up your preacher's time during the week and not letting him study if he wants to study. And any church that has a man that's an expositor and wants to spend time studying, you let him study, he needs that. And he'll have to have that if he's going to be an exposit of the Word. You can't be lazy and be in the ministry and get anywhere. Well, I'd had in school that Baola became a pastor up in the San Joaquin Valley. After he'd been up there about three years, he came down. He said he wanted to talk to me. He and I went to lunch, and 
I asked him, I said, what's your problem? He said, you know, I'm getting ready to get out of the ministry. And I said, why? Well, he said, I've run out of things to preach. I'm just beginning to repeat myself, and people notice it. And I said to him, how long do you take in preparing a sermon? Well, he told me, he says, I've preached all of yours that I've got, and I've preached others, and I generally just get up one about three hours. And I said, well, if you ever have preached any of mine, I can tell you this, the sermon may not look like it, but I spent over 24 hours just preparing that sermon because I never preached until I was ready to preach. And I never do a tape until I think I'm ready to do a tape. Sometimes it doesn't sound like it, but the time has been put in back of it. Laziness is a great sin, and I don't think God excuses that. I dealt with a young fellow recently. He wants to go into the ministry. And he had high hopes of going to a seminary. Now he has the vain notion that he can become a preacher by just going out and the Holy Spirit will teach him. And I can tell you one thing. The Holy Spirit has never yet taught a lazy preacher. He'll only teach the one that's willing to go all the way in studying. That's the first sin of the ministry, you see. And that's one of the problems. This thing became wearisome to those people. Why? They didn't love the Word of God. You have to love the Word of God. That's the reason the Bible is different than any other book. Any other book, you've got to read it before you love it. You must understand it before you can love it. But my friend, you've got to love the Word of God before you can understand it. The Spirit of God's not teaching lazy folk. And then the second great sin of the ministry is an overweening ambition. That is, it can manifest itself in several different ways. It's a form of covetousness, of fame, of wanting to be a big preacher, of wanting to preach to the crowd. Oh, that is a great sin of the ministry, wanting to speak to crowds. And I very frankly am convinced that the great preachers today are not in the big churches, and they're not always the ones getting the big crowd. I listened to a man some time ago preach a sermon, and I don't think he had a hundred people present, but it was a great sermon, expository sermon. Just thrilled my heart to hear that young preacher preach. And I said to him, how long did you spend? He says, I've been working on that all week. I suppose that boy put in over 20 hours getting up that message. May I say to you, he's willing to be pastor of a small group of people. All this idea of trying to become a great preacher and go to a great church, it's like the preacher I heard of, this is somewhere in Texas, that came in and told his wife one day, says, you know, over at the next town that's larger than the town we're in, the church over there has asked me if I would consider a call to the church. And he said, it's a larger church, and they pay a larger salary, and there are really lots better people over there. And he said, I'm going upstairs and pray about it to see what the Lord wants me to do. And his wife says, well, I'll go up and pray with you. He says, no, you stay down here and pack up. May I say to you, I'm afraid that there are a great many that are like that. Then the third, and this is really the one that I'd like to emphasize, the third great sin of the ministry is to be dull and boring, to be tedious and wearisome. And the reason for that is not to stay enough in the book, of course, a man doesn't have to have charisma. He may not have that. But there's no excuse today to be apathetic and very prosaic and colorless and a lackluster. I mentioned last time of going and seeing this Shakespearean play. Now, to begin with, Shakespeare was a great writer. And I don't think he just dashed it off, you know, all of a sudden. We're told he spent hours writing these plays. And he was, of course, a genius. 
But I listened to these young men, one of them playing Richard II and the other playing the one that's supposed to have been his friend, finally dethroned him and sent him to the tower in London. But the thing that impressed me about the play above everything else was the way that these young men who played those two parts, how they enunciated, how clearly they spoke, and how they had worked on their lines. I watched purposely because I have been in Shakespeare plays when I was very young. They didn't miss a cue. They didn't have a slip of the tongue. They went right through it. You know why? They had worked and worked and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And I say this, if the actor in the world can spend all of that time working, why can't we spend time working to give out the Word of God today? God said here, he says, you despise my name when you do that. Any preacher that'll go into the pulpit unprepared despises the name of the Lord. And he's causing people to say, boy, this is boring. This is wearisome. My, it's terrible. And that is one of the great sins of the ministry. And now he mentions here in verse 14, as we've read it, he says, Cursed be the deceiver who hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrifices unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Now, here is something else people do, make vows to God. Now, when I was going through that section in Leviticus, you remember how I emphasized that, and then again in Proverbs. For some strange reason, God doesn't want you to tell him something unless you mean it. If you promise to do something for God, you better go through with it, because God means business. If you promise him something you're going to give him or something you're going to do. Now, he doesn't ask you to make the vow. That's voluntary. But when you make that vow, make sure you go with it. Now, there were people there that were making big protestations. They said, it looks like we're going to have a bumper crop this year, and I am going to give the Lord not only a tenth, but I'm going to make some free will offerings to him. And then when the harvest came in and it was in abundance, they decided that they would keep it for themselves, you see. They decided that they would not turn it over to the Lord after all. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 1, and I have time enough to give you what I have in my notes, and I would like to just read it concerning these last two verses of chapter 1. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! This father aggravated their backslidden condition. People were actually saying that God bored them. In any endeavor, when the heart is not in it, it becomes an awful bore. Why do you think men adopted a ritual, wore robes, chanted, and marched? They were tired of spiritual worship. The people thought that something was wrong with God. It never occurred to them that something was wrong with them. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. And then in verse 14, this sorry condition caused them to offer to God the corrupt, the lame, and the sick. 